message today is Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13. I encourage you to turn there and stand as we recognize this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Hebrews 8, starting with verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Lord, as we read these perhaps difficult words, I pray that you would help us to understand today. Certainly help us to hear and and listen and to be receptive to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are some passages in the Bible that have established themselves as kind of go-to passages for important theological topics. Romans chapter 9, for example, is one that you might go to if you were talking about the sovereignty of of God. At the same time, Romans 9 is also one of those passages that many come away with saying, I'm not sure exactly what that means and all of its implications. This is one of those passages today, Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13. It's like Romans 9. It's a go-to passage, specifically for what we would call covenant theology. And yet, as we read it, some of the terms like covenant and phrases like growing old and obsolete and ready to vanish away might leave you asking, well, what, what does this all mean? Well, for those who have been at CVP for a long time and have participated in some of our conversations and teachings on this topic, or even for some who were with us in that brief overview that we did uh, during the new members' time on on kind of the overview of, of covenants, I do plan to give you some new angles from which you can look at this important topic today. So don't don't tune me out. This is God's Word, and this is good good material for us to, to think about and wrestle with here. Uh, I, I do know you've, you've heard the term covenant a lot around this church. Uh, we even belong to the Covenant Presbyterian Church denomination. And, and so clearly covenant as a theological term has take, taken on significance for us. And it's important for us to know what that means because the Bible actually talks about covenant a lot. Well, a covenant is an agreement or a bond between two parties in which they each make promises to and and take on obligation towards one another. 
And if each party keeps their promises and fulfills their obligations, then good things or blessings result. And if one does not keep or their promise or fails in their obligation towards the other, then, then bad things or curses result. That's, that's kind of the most simple, basic idea of a covenant. And, and God used those. They were, they were things that were being done, covenantal agreements and treaties between people in the time of Scripture. And God, as He often does, condescended to uh, use these things that men did and kind of co-opted them for himself and said, I will make a covenant with you. You're familiar with what this is. You're familiar with covenant and treaties and so on. So I, the Lord, will make a covenant with you. And what we find in, in history is that these covenants were ratified during formal ceremonies. And the first time that you see one is in Genesis 15. And I want you to I want you to turn there. It's a familiar passage for many of you. We're not going to spend a long time there. And I'm not going to get there for a second either. But I want you to be there for when I do. And it's in Genesis 15 that God tells Abraham, I will make a covenant with you. And I will be making you a father. The promises I'm making to you is I'm going to make you a father of many nations. In fact, that's what the, the name change signifies when he goes from Abram to Abraham is, is father of many people. And I will be a God to you. And I'll be a God to your descendants after you. And of course, he's speaking to an older man who has no children at the time, right? So this is a great promise by the Lord. And what would those obligations be that would normally attend a covenant agreement between two people or more? Well, Abraham was expected to obey God's law, to be holy, to be set apart, different from the other nations. And further, as a reminder of what was expected of him, Abraham and, and his male descendants were to be circumcised. So that was, that was going to be a, a very visual symbol of separation from the rest of the world. And at its core, these covenants that God made with his people were about relationship in each covenant that we find in the scriptures God says I will be your God I'll be a God to you to your children after you and you will be my people this relationship that is established by the covenant so this is not an arrogant king trying to exact tribute from some conquered nation right it's not God who steps on the necks of the people that he makes citizens of the kingdom of God and has his whip ready. This is a benevolent creator that offers everlasting life to those who don't deserve it. And he brings them into this relationship of being his people, of being his adopted children and more. Well, just as 15, we have a covenant ratification ceremony. And realize that Abraham is not the first person in scripture to have had God make a covenant with him and in prior generations God had covenanted with Adam to preserve a godly line of descendants and ultimately he says through this line through your children Adam Eve I will bring forth one who will crush the power ultimately of death and sin crush the head of the serpent that represents that 
And like with Abraham, God tells Adam that I will be your God. Adam, you will be my son. And he tells him, if you obey, if you keep the obligation of this covenantal agreement, if you obey, you will continue in this, this relationship with me and, and be a part of this, this garden. If you will not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of this will continue. But there was a curse, wasn't there, that attended to disobedience and breaking of that covenant. And that curse was exile. You'd be cut off from that intimate relationship with God, cut off from the garden. And that curse of exile from Eden was ultimately no different than the curse that was told to Abraham and ultimately through Moses to, to their descendants that if you obey, you will experience the, the blessings of my presence and, and my, my blessing upon the land, and it will be a land of, of milk and honey, and, and your labor and everything will be fruitful. But if you disobey and break your obligations under this covenant, what will happen? You'll be exiled, set apart from me. Now, God similarly covenants with Noah after the flood. After Abraham, he covenants with Moses and the nation of Israel. Later still with David. But they're not all different covenants. Rather, the same thread of relationship runs through all of them. Each time God covenants with one of these people, whether it's Adam or Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, there's this same gracious promise and the same obligations. Our Lord was not required to create Adam, nor was he obligated to sustain his life. He wasn't obligated to give him the wonderful situation of being in that royal garden, if you will, in Eden. God was not obligated to call Noah, to call Abraham out of a, of a pagan nation, pagan family, or to anoint the shepherd boy David As king, God told all of these men, though, I will be your God and you will be my people. So when we talk about God covenanting with his people, I want to encourage you, don't think of a covenant as some cold, abstract theological term. That's not what it is. It is an expression of relationship that grows out of the abundant love of God Presenting the details of how God promises to act on behalf of his people and what he expects in return from them. And so in this sense, the covenant, you know, it's similar in some ways to how a constitution of a church functions when it lays out the purpose of the church and the relationship between its members and the relationship between the membership and leadership. And you can think of God's covenant as kind of the constitution of His kingdom. But even as you do, remember that it is energized by the personal relational love and grace of a good God. And so God's kingdom, it begins with this first family. They're given this mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to exercise dominion over the earth. They're to walk in faith. They're to acknowledge God's purpose and his rule and everything 
as well as to submit their own desires to his commands. They are to know his ways are higher than their own. They are to be blameless and pure. And as long as they were perfect, and I use that word intentionally, as long as they were perfect, then there would be no need of redemption. And we could assume that that relationship with God would have continued, but of course we know that did not happen. didn't happen from the start. Immediately God's people failed in their obligation. Adam and Eve failed. The very beginning. And so the kingdom of God was in crisis. Citizens rebelling, king called to action. The wonderful thing, though, is that God was yet gracious. And unlike those ancient kings that would come and they would utterly crush a rebellious vassal, God covers their sin through Christ. He helps them understand that covering by instituting the sacrificial system under Moses. And then over the course of time, these citizens rebel again and again and again. And God continues to intervene. He sends his prophets. He sends various leaders and judges and other people to uh, always preserve a remnant, to call the people to action and back to himself. And all of it serves to remind us that God's covenant from Adam through Christ is one of grace one that's intended to give God glory. Not one of us deserves or ever has deserved the favor of the King of Kings. Now I realize that in, in describing God's covenant as a relationship, it might oversimplify or overgeneralize what actually has some formal aspects. And I've already mentioned promises, obligations, and even ceremonies. Now look at, at verse 7 of 15 where you are in Genesis. We'll just be here a couple, couple minutes. Verse 7 says, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him, cut them in two, right down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Adam or Abram drove them away. And if you stop there, you realize, if you know and remember some of what we've talked about in the past about these ceremonies, or if you know history, this is, this is a covenant ratification ceremony. This is what you did in the ancient world. You brought these animals and you divided them and you laid them on either side of a path down which uh, the people, the parties making the covenant would walk. And in verse 17 it says, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And so they would normally, these parties would walk down the middle between these divided pieces and what, what they were supposed to be looking at on either side of them as they saw the dead animals. I mean, it really is in some ways kind of gross and visceral, isn't it? But, but what is it supposed to, to be representing for them? It's, it, the, the people were saying, may I be like these animals if I do not uphold my part of the covenant. May this happen to me if I don't keep my promise. And so in Abraham's dream, God himself, by himself, walks between the pieces. 
he commits to upholding his covenantal promises, even to the point, symbolically, of calling death upon himself should he not be faithful. Of course, God is always faithful. So it wasn't a danger of God suddenly coming out of existence, which of course would mean we all would be because we already know from the rest of scriptures that God sustains us by his very word, right? So, but the fact of the matter is, and this is very vivid, that God calls death upon himself should he not be faithful. And he is the one that promises to Abraham. And then he tells Abraham, now you go and uphold your obligations under the covenant. What is that obligation? To be perfect, to walk holy, uprightly, righteously before me, obey my law. Now, besides a ceremony, another formal aspect of the covenant was that usually there was a covenantal sign. And we're not going to go into that at all today, but you, you know, for example, with Genesis 6, that God institutes the, the sign of the rainbow. At that point in time, he establishes circumcision at the time of Abraham. And when Christ brings the new covenant, he establishes baptism as a new covenant sign. And then a final formal aspect of, of God's covenant is that there were specific penalties or curses associated with the breaking of the covenant. And that, that's why I said at the beginning, you know, we've got to be careful. Even though if we miss the relational aspect of the covenant, we miss a huge part of what it is. Yet on the other side, we don't want to so simplify and say, oh, it's about my relationship with the Lord that we forget there's a formal aspect. There's a ceremony, there's a sign, and there's also a blessing and curse that goes with it. And the penalty of breaking the covenant is a loss of God's favor. It's exile from the land. Ultimately, exile from God, death. And given that man's obligation was to walk perfectly before God and the fact that no one but Jesus has ever done that, these penalties should be concerning right? They should especially be concerning to us today if we who live after Jesus Christ are still in covenant with God in the same ways as those in the Old Testament were. So that begs the question, are we still in covenantal relationship with God? Are God's promises to us and to our children? Are we to walk perfectly before God? Are there curses and blessings reserved for those of us in covenant relationship with the Lord? Well, turn with me now to 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And this is all going to make sense as we use this foundation to transition back into our afternoon's passage in just a moment. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6 is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, We have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, stay there because we'll look at a few more verses in just a second. But I want you to have that phrase, the new covenant, that jumps out at us. We read that phrase here. We read it a little bit ago in our afternoon's passage in Hebrews 8. And we hear it from Jesus. 
as he takes the Passover cup and he proclaims it to be the blood, his blood, of the new covenant. What is this new covenant? And why is it being described as new if, if as I suggested earlier, there's not a whole bunch of different covenants, but there's this, this kind of covenant, that this thread that unifies the Bible together. Well, if you look at verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 3, in order to set this up, according to Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after receiving the Ten Commandments, something strange happened, and that is that the Bible describes that his face, the skin of his face, still was glowing in some, some particular way. I don't, I'm not sure what that was, but it was shining with the reflected radiance of having been in this, the presence of God. And his brother Aaron asks him to cover his face. He says, please cover your face because the sight is unsettling, but also because, in a sense, this glow is holy. And now Moses doesn't wear the veil forever in time the shine leaves his face but i want you to notice how paul in second corinthians 3 uses this this event he uses it as a metaphor he says this fade this fading shine from moses's face was like the fading glory of the law as it was fulfilled in christ and if we read verse 7 he says if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now, some of you are reading that, and your, and your heads are spinning around, your eyes are rolling up into the back of your heads, and you're going, this is another one of those passages that you described at the beginning that you walk away saying, I don't understand what this means. So let me just tell you, the ministry of condemnation that we read there in 2 Corinthians 3, that's the law. That's what we might consider the old covenant. And, and Paul is saying something important about it. He says it is not evil. It is the reflection of God's character into human law and institutions. It is, what does he say? It was glorious. It was good. It was holy. It reflected God's perfect character. But the law revealed sin. And in fact, if you look at the law that was written on the sun, well, they were all prohibitions, weren't they? Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. They were boundaries. They were restrictions. And it brought condemnation and death. Because it revealed the perfect standard of God in that boundary line that man kept crossing and transgressing against the Lord. 
But because the law is holy, the ministry of the law, the ministry of what was condemnation or death, was glorious. But the ministry of righteousness, namely the redemptive work of Christ, far exceeds that glory. In fact, the glory of the ministry of righteousness so surpasses the ministry of condemnation that in comparison, Paul says, you could even say, even though it was glorious, you could even say that the ministry of condemnation, by comparison, had no glory. That's what he's saying. Now, imagine if you had lit a candle in a fairly dimly lit room you would, you would see that light probably perfectly well. But if you take that light outdoors in the f- face of the brightly shining sun, what takes over your field of vision? It's the sun, isn't it? Almost as if the candle isn't burning anymore. Still is light, still is glorious in that sense, but the sun behind it is even that much more glorious. Or children, if you had a penny in one hand and a thousand dollar bill in another hand, and someone asked you which hand possessed money, which hand would you raise? Would you raise the hand with a penny or a thousand dollar bill? Some of you are going to make this example not work because you'd say, I'd raise both of them. They both have money in them. Well, in a sense, you'd be right, right? They both are money. They're both glorious. But which one really is the weighty one? Which one that is so much glory, so much value that by comparison you could almost say that the other hand doesn't have anything in it at all? That's really what Paul is saying about the law and the Spirit. The Spirit is so much glorious in comparison. And so 2 Corinthians 3 is a great passage because it says it actually tells us a lot more than we've just talked about. It's, it's, it tells us a little bit about the continuity between the Old and New Testament periods. Because Paul tells us the Old Covenant, the Old Testament period, that was glorious. It had glory and value. It reflected God's goodness. There's nothing in the term old. There's nothing in the term old that should imply unworthy or substandard. That's important. God's covenantal relationship with Adam, with Abraham, with Moses, with Noah, with David, they were all glorious. Second, Paul explains that the glory of the New Testament redemption of the New Covenant is even greater than that of the Old Testament system. So what does new then mean? Well, if the old was glorious and wasn't bad or substandard or unworthy, the new must mean better or enhanced. Because the difference isn't between bad and good. It isn't between two totally unrelated things. It isn't even about past and present. It is a difference between good and better. It's a difference between a penny and a thousand dollars, between a candlelight and the brightly shining sun. There are many who treat the Old Covenant and the Old Testament period as anything but glorious. They think of it as instead a dark and oppressive time full of restrictive laws and severe penalties. After all, what do most people call the period after Christ? They call it the period or age of grace. 
right? What does that mean? <laughs> that by comparison, everything before the age of period of grace was the age of non-grace, the age of, of something else, something worse. But that isn't how the Bible treats it. In the Old Covenant, God's grace was experienced from Adam all the way through to Jesus. So what makes the New Covenant better than the Old? It's certainly not that one is of grace, the other is of law. In the Bible, those two are always, and I've said this before, inseparably tied together. You can't have law without grace. And you can't have grace without law. Even the Gospel comes with the expectation to obey God's law. Right? The greatest Gospel message ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, ended with these words in Matthew 5.48. Therefore, walk in liberty, all of you, because you've been freed from the oppressive regulations and restrictions of the law in the Old Testament period. Is that what Jesus said? No, he says, therefore, you shall be perfect. Wow. Now he's just reiterating the same obligations that came under the Old Covenant. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the difference between the Old and New Covenants must be something else. And going back to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the difference is that the Old Covenant somehow resulted in death, but the New Covenant brings life, and that's where our passage today comes in. Let's finally go to Hebrews 8. And I've spent this time building this foundation because it's vital for us to understand the difficult things said in Hebrews 8. Up in verse 6 of this chapter, the author calls the new covenant in Christ's blood a better or superior covenant. And it says that because it is established on better promises. Now the new covenant has the same promise that the old covenant had. That is, God is promising to be a God to you and to your children after you. That was the same promise that was a part of the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, we see the addition that the ob obligation to keep the law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And His righteousness is graciously offered to people through faith. That's an amazing promise. Because without that promise, even the great uh, promise of God to be a God to His people and to their children after them, it would always ultimately fail and be faulty, not because of God, but because God's people did not uphold their obligations and they could not under the Old Covenant. And that's why verse 7 of Hebrews 8 says that the Old Covenant had a fault in it. That's important for us since we built that foundation. Now you understand what the fault was. It wasn't in the Old Covenant itself. It wasn't that this is a dark period and, and somehow imperfect period. It's because without that gracious addition of Jesus' righteousness from outside of ourselves, covering us and allowing us to fulfill that obligation to be perfect before God, the fault would always be we would never meet the obligation. It would be impossible. We'd be doomed to failure. And even though God gave the sacrificial system 
to prepare people for Christ, yet the blood of bulls and goats could not make anyone perfectly holy for eternity. God could have said, too bad. But that's not what verse 8 says, is it? It says, even though God found fault, not with the covenant, notice, but with them, found fault with them, i.e. with sinful men and women, nevertheless, God said, I will make a new covenant, not according to the first covenant. God's standards don't change. God never changes. He's always holy, holy, holy. He always will command that his people be perfect before him. And his standard is his law. And both are glorious because they point to his righteous perfection. But something is different about the new covenant. And we've seen that it isn't the expectation of perfection. And it isn't somehow a different kind of grace or a removal of the law. The difference is partially that Jesus has fulfilled our obligation on our behalf. But also look at verse 10. And I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That's a quote from Jeremiah. Do you see that God did not say something like, the new covenant cancels my law. You now live in a period of grace and no law. Rather, he said, I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. So the law is still there. It is still valid. It went from the hard stone of clay tablets to the soft flesh of your heart. But I'll tell you something else that's really amazing. As you look at the law on stone, you realize, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, the prohibitions, right? But the New Testament says that Christ came that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So it goes beyond just what we can't do, what we shouldn't do, what we ought not to do to actually motivating us to live like Christ, to be like Christ. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's everything wrong with fallen humanity. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did not cancel it. You and I are still expected to fulfill it, but it's not just about do not, do not, do not. It is about reflecting the principles that undergird all of those laws that may result in do nots. But what's, what's more important than do not lie? It's about being a, a person of integrity and truth because God is a God of truth. What's more important about not stealing but actually being a steward of what God has given us and living in a way as a disciple of God that not only uses that wisely investing for his kingdom, but has a right view of the world's goods and the world's resources. You see, it's not just about the negative prohibitions about the law, but something happened when that law was inscribed upon our hearts and Jesus came. And so the question is, are you united to Jesus Christ through faith? Then his fulfillment has become your fulfillment. The law upon your heart has made you so that you, uh, in your conscience and the spirit indwelling you, makes, motivates you to do what God would do. 
And that is the third significant thing that happens in that transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Not only that Jesus fulfills the obligation for us, not only that uh, we have the law written on our hearts, but that what was uh, once external becomes internal through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How much more glorious is a covenant that it comes with the Holy Spirit? indwelling his people working in us to will and to do his good pleasure so the new covenant is new because of all those things it is new because it comes with additional better promises And many of you, like me, grew up being taught that there was such a huge difference between the Old and New Covenant periods. Like I said, that we we focus today on the, the church age or the period of grace, and that's not what we've seen today. And so because of that, I want to leave you, I want to close with a few important applications of all of this. First, it's important that we understand the commonality that we share with those of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant period. The redemption that we look back upon is the same redemption to which Old Testament believers look towards. Not different salvations. Abraham looked forward to a kingdom and a city not made with human hands of the architect of which is God. That's what the Bible says. And we look not only back on that with greater understanding because of Christ, but we look forward to one day being uh, eternally in that. Right? Second, the Old and New Covenant communities don't just share a common faith, they also share a common practice. I mean, if you turn the page to Hebrews 9, verse 1 says, The first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Those ordinances were the sacrificial system. But then verse 11 says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So there were sacrifices, priests under both covenants. Verse 15, for this reason he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of internal inheritance. So we have intercession. We have the same hope of redemption, of eternal inheritance shared between those of the old, the new covenants, but also notice the conclusion, verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Do you see how the old covenant community didn't have, while it had its own barbaric customs and cultures and and things, and we have our practices and institutions? No, you'll notice that the initial practices under the old covenant were copies, shadows of the real heavenly things. Shadows, types, Examples, copies, those are meant to point us to the real thing. 
So the commonality that we share is, wow, the old covenant people had similar promises, a similar hope. They had the priest, they had the intercession, they had sacrifice, all copies of what took place with Christ. But Christ has entered the Holy of Holies, the real throne room of God, not just the earthly representation of that in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. He's entered the throne room of God in heaven. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not just after the Aaronic priesthood that, you know, the priests themselves who were sinful. Jesus is a sinless life. And so what we see are all these practices of the old covenant community, but they've been performed once and for all in a perfect, more glorious way by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And the point of all of this is this. The new covenant community, that's us, is no different than the old covenant community in so many important respects. Their lessons are still our lessons. Their heroes are our heroes. Their hopes are our hopes. But the ministry of Jesus and the presence of God and dwelling his people through the Holy Spirit is such a monumental advancement and improvement that everything before him could be called old, could be said to be passing away and vanishing away because it was a preparation for. You don't need those things anymore when the real thing, the substance of what you are preparing for has come. So let us not separate the time before Christ and the time after Christ in the different eras. The idea of covenant and the relationship with God and his promise and our obligation that unifies all of, of human history. And last, if we are in covenantal relationship with God, and if we are obligated to be obedient to the reign of Christ in all of our areas of our lives, then then in everything we do, we must seek to glorify God. This is serious. We belong to him who has purchased us with his blood. We belong to him who purchased us with his blood. That's why Abraham Kuyper would say there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. But friends, aren't you rejoicing that you're a part of the new covenant? Because you don't want to be trusting in the old covenant. Thinking that you can keep the obligation of perfect obedience to the law without the greater promise of Christ fulfilling that for you without the greater promise of a regenerated heart and the Holy Spirit indwelling you and the law being engraved upon your heart. You don't want to live under that old system. You don't want to live under the expectation that your works will save you because they will not. And that was the big lesson learned by everyone who came under the old covenant era. The new covenant, and that is ultimately what the author of Hebrews has been propelling us towards in these first 10 chapters, that's what this is all about, friends. We've finally gotten there. The new covenant promises life through Christ. It provides the security, significance, and meaning that we want. So I encourage you, look to him. 
look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that I am under the new covenant, not that Abraham and and the rest didn't look forward to this time, but they, they labored under an incomplete understanding. And even our understanding today is, is not full. We still look as in a mirror dimly, but one day we will know you face to face. We will uh, know all things perfectly, whereas right now we know in part. But Father, we know so much more than, than Abraham. We, we know Christ. And we are able to participate in the new covenant, such a wonderful advancement in which you have taken the law You have engraved it upon our hearts and there's no longer the necessity for the special teachers to go and and somehow say no the Lord because you have allowed all of us to know God if we are your people. From the youngest to the oldest, if we are under your new covenant, if we are called by your name, if we are changed by your work in our lives we are all able to know you we have the holy spirit indwelling us and we are able to fulfill not only the law but to begin to be more like christ so we thank you for these things and ask that you would continue to work in us in the days to come it's in jesus name we pray amen